And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. We, I guess, I don't know if we officially kick off summer yet, but uh, it, it's certainly getting that way. And uh, of course, school right around the corner, letting out. My son's got one more week of school, so he's very excited about uh, finishing up his first year in college. So this is all moving very quickly, of course. Uh, big news over the weekend. There's a There used to be a series on television called The Highlander. You remember that yeah. series? Yeah. Uh, of course, the premise was is that there were immortals that lived in the world and that they had to kill each other off because as they killed each other off, they absorbed their power of immortality. And eventually there would only be one, right? This was the whole premise of the entire series of, of Highlander. Of course, uh, that is also what's happening in the banking sector as JP Morgan is working on becoming one of only two major banks in the US. It'll be the central bank, and JP Morgan, who will dictate to the central bank what, what to do. But over the weekend, uh, JP Morgan acquired First Republic Bank. First Republic Bank, uh, of course, has been on the ropes uh, this year following the Silicon Valley Bank failure. Uh, First Republic Bank also in trouble. This is the second largest fail bank failure in U.S. history. Uh, very, very, it's a, it was a large bank. Um, they were acquired, the deposits were require, acquired over the weekend. This is very interesting, too, because when you read the headlines, it says, J.P. Morgan acquired the deposits uh, and assets of First Republic over the weekend. Okay, what about the liabilities of the bank? Where are those? Who absorbed those? Oh, that would be the taxpayer. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, this will all work itself out. But J.P. Morgan acquiring the assets... This is going to make, uh, obviously, accretive to uh, J.P. Morgan very quickly to come out and say, yes, this will be accretive to our bottom line. Yes, because you acquired the assets and the deposits, none of the liabilities. But, <laughs> you know, this is going to be great for J.P. Morgan. Uh, that stock is going to trade up this morning on the news. Uh, obviously, if you have any holdings in First Republic, they'll be trading lower this morning uh, as basically that bank is no longer in business. In fact, this morning... I believe, don't quote me on the number, I believe there are 84 branches, uh, physical branches of First Republic Bank. Those will all open up this morning as J.P. Morgan Chase Bank branches. All depositors will have access to their money. All, and, and this is something I've talked about numerous times in the past. And this is a really great example of this. You know, there's all these concerns uh, that run around in the markets when we get into a period of, of financial turmoil. It's like, oh my gosh, what happens if, right? I, and, and, you know, people worrying about FDIC insurance and SIPC and all this type of stuff. And I've told you numerous times, I said that when a bank or brokerage firm fails, those assets and deposits are moved to an acquiring firm literally overnight. Well, this is exactly what I've been talking about over the week. On Friday, First Republic's in business. Saturday morning, it goes into receivership. Sunday, it's acquired the assets and deposits acquired by J.P. Morgan. This morning, you're now a J.P. Morgan customer. And that's the way the financial system works. So there's all these, you know, this, this is always the, the problem with media and headlines and 
all these type of things. It scares people into making decisions about their finances, right? Uh, I'm going to put all my money into cash because I'm, I'm worried that, you know, Fidelity is going to go out of business or Schwab's going to, whatever it is, right? There's, there's you know, always headlines and concerns, right? And these, these things are blown up in the media, et cetera. And so people make financial decisions based on these headlines, which can be scary, right? Uh, no doubt about it. I mean, you take a look at headlines over the last year, um, uh, podcasts, videos, and you just look anywhere. It's like, oh, recession's coming. Uh, we're going to have a recession by the end of the year and markets are going to collapse by 35%, whatever it is, but yet... Markets aren't collapsing. You know, we're having bank failures. They're getting resolved very quickly. Um, there's no stress in the credit market at all. So again, this is, this is why it's important to pay attention to what's happening in the markets, much less than paying attention to headlines. Because everybody's got an opinion. Everybody wants to sell you something. Fear sells. So, you know, it's a, good, it's a good tool to use to sell you a product, particularly if like it's annuity, insurance products, et cetera. So always be real careful with that. But um, this just kind of goes to show you how the system works. And again, you know, if you're worried about a major bank failure, whatever it is, yes, that could certainly impact markets. Well, we just had one, second largest in history. Markets are gonna be flat this morning on the news. S&P is literally flat right now, but <laughs> Dow futures are up five. Uh, so markets are flat after the second largest bank failure in, in U.S. history. This is, of course, following the Silicon Valley bank failure earlier this year. There is no stress in the markets. Buybacks are set to come back. One of the things that's been dragging on the markets over the last month or so, heading into quarter one earnings season, was the lack of buybacks. Buybacks were in blackout. Companies cannot buy back their stock ahead of earnings. Now that earnings are basically through, we've got about 64%-ish of all companies have now reported earnings as of Friday. And not surprisingly, 54% of those beat estimates. Not surprising after you lower, <laughs> lower, after you lower uh, the expectations by $55. Um, but markets rallied last week on the news. Thursday and Friday, big rally on the markets took us back up towards those previous highs here. Uh, there isn't a lot of upside here in the markets right now. Um, it is possible right now that because of this kind of, of earnings-based rally we had over the last few days, this uh, MACD buy sell signal that we got a few days ago might flip back to positive temporarily. And again, that's not surprising. This happens sometimes, you, you, but again, the signal's at a fairly high level, so upside is probably somewhat limited. Yes, markets could certainly rally a bit more from here, but again, being a little bit more cautious right now is probably not a bad idea, just because the markets have already had a fairly extensive run here. So a lot of what's happening in earnings was already getting priced into these stocks, and the breadth of the market remains extremely narrow. Very, very narrow here. It is literally just a handful of stocks that are pushing markets higher, and of course those are your big large cat names, the Apples, the Microsoft. Uh, the, the Netflixes, et cetera, those have been uh, pushing the markets higher. But again, that is, a, that is certainly a, a problem here because again, you need a, you know, a broad, if this market's gonna continue, if we're gonna continue to have a very bullish market, you need a much broader advance than this. So, so again, uh, you know, there's probably some limited upside here. Uh, I would continue to use this rally as an opportunity to, to basically raise some cash and rebalance your portfolios a bit, particularly if you're really, really overweight equity exposure right now uh, that's been working here for the last month or so. But 
it's a good time to kind of just tailor in some of that excess risk taking for the moment, particularly as we go into summer. Uh, this week we have the Federal Reserve announcing uh, their next rate hike. It's not the rate hike. It's going to be the language that's more important. What does Jerome Powell say about their inflation fight? Because some of the inflation indicators, per the, the trimmed mean PCE as an example, that's the personal consumption expenditures inflation component, that is remaining very sticky. And the trimmed mean PCE is one of the indicators that the Fed does look at very closely. That is not coming down. So again, this whole battle for inflation and control of inflation is not being won by the Fed right now. So again, while everybody's expecting the Fed to hike rates by 25 basis points, that's pretty much a foregone conclusion by the markets. It's gonna be the language that will move the markets over this week. So again, if the Fed comes out, this week and says, hey, you know, we're going to have to keep fighting inflation, no rate cuts anytime soon. Uh, that may weigh on market prices here temporarily, which have really been banking on this idea the Fed is getting ready to pause. Um, but we'll talk some more about that this morning. So stick around. Lots coming up this morning on Real Investment Show. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Retirement's not what it used to be. And knowing how health insurance works after you leave your job is vital. Our next Lunch and Learn will tackle transitioning to Medicare. Thursday, May 11th with Danny Ratliff and Richard Rosso. How will Medicare work with the insurance you already have? What are the deadlines you need to know for signing up for Medicare? Register now for our Transitioning to Medicare Lunch and learn with Ratliff and Rosso at realinvestmentadvice.com realinvestmentadvice.com The Real Investment Show Hey, good morning and welcome back to the show. Brant, I've got really bad news for you. Actually, for you and me both, I have bad news. What's that? Apparently, we're going to live a lot longer than I expected. <laughs> oh, joy. I was I was hoping to cash out of this deal here sooner than later. But apparently, uh, according uh, over the weekend, Nikki Haley made a comment that says that uh, she didn't expect Joe Biden to survive his second term just mm -hmm. because of his age. I mean, he will be, you know, 81 going into the election. Right. I'm so, surprised he survived this one so well, far. So an actuarials came out uh -huh. uh, to rebut her statement and says that, you know, based on, you know, basically economic surroundings, right, kind of, you know, your access to, to health care, those type of things. Of course, as president, you have excellent health care. You have Walter Reed Hospital right at your fingertips for anything that you need. Uh, but based on that, marital status and employment. So there you go. So marital status, if you have a good marriage, guess what? You're not checking out anytime soon. Bad news for you. Employment, if you're employed and working, keeping you uh, thinking, mm -hmm. you know, keeping you yeah. active, apparently that contributes to your life expectancy. Yeah. Um, so Donald Trump, who's also about, you know, not just not too far behind Biden. I think he's 76-ish now. Yeah. Right. 75, 76, somewhere around there. Um, so the actuarial state that uh, Biden has 11 years of life expectancy left so really yeah 91 so that means you and i are not getting out of this gig anytime soon 
Well, Danny that is keeps very telling you, disappointed. Danny keeps telling you you can't retire. I know. Well, yeah, that's that's the whole other thing. But apparently, we're stuck in this gig for a while longer. <laughs> I was very disappointed on that whole deal. So. <laughs> I was I was hoping for a shorter window than a longer one. So you're ready for your dirt nap? Is that yes. what you're saying? I'm tired. <laughs> I'm tired. Uh, it's too stressful. Um, anyway, a couple of things this morning. Uh, as I was saying, um, you know, you've got to be careful, you know, separating out headlines this morning. And, and, and you would think, and this is the expectation, right, uh, of individuals is like, oh, my gosh, we're, we're going to have a bank failure and this is going to create a credit crisis and, you know, we're going to have a big major sell-off in the markets. Well, you just had the second biggest bank failure in history, and yet markets are basically flat this morning. It doesn't mean they won't be down some. But, you know, you would expect, right, and, of course, if you've been listening to all of the headlines and, and the podcast and the, the YouTube channels and blah, 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 you know, that you're going to have a bank failure, the second largest in history, that, you know, you're going to wake up this morning and markets down, you know, Dow's down a thousand points. You know, that wouldn't be surprising, right, with the, with the bank failure, but we're not. And this goes to tell you a good bit about the under the, the underpinnings of the market and also a little bit about, you know, market psychology that, you know, despite these very negative views, the market's doing something very different. And this is why we have to be careful, as I've talked about so many times here on the show as of late, we've got to be careful allowing these more negative expectations to override our investment decisions related to what the market's doing. Now, I'm not saying, you know, go be a raging bull either. I'm not saying that at all, but there's been a lot of, you know, I get a lot of emails and of course, I, you know, I, I see all the videos, right? Y'all email me all the most dire end of the world videos that y'all can find. I, th I think y'all have a competition going to see which one of you can send me a better end of the world scenario um, video. And, you know, these things, you know, it's possible that some of these things could come to pass, but more often than not, they don't. And again, you know, the, the risk that we pay attention to is credit risk. That is the one thing that really causes the markets to come unhinged is credit risk. And that's a, a break in the credit markets that all of a sudden people just stop trading debt with each other. It's like, I am not, I'm not extending credit. I'm not doing anything. I'm stopped, right? And that's the part that seizes up the economy and the market. And that's not happening right now. And you just had, again, you just had the second biggest bank failure in history. JP Morgan steps up. They acquire the assets. Everybody becomes a depositor today of J.P. Morgan, and markets are still functioning. And that's the key point of all this, right? So when you hear these videos or you read articles, et cetera, that, you know, the end of the world is nigh, say, okay, what does that mean? And how does that affect the function of the credit markets? Will that seize activity in the credit markets because really at the end of the day that is all that matters stock prices go up and down that doesn't really affect that much right but you you stop the credit market it's a different story 
because that seizes up the economy because the economy is driven through credit. That's the credit is the lifeblood of the economy. So the first question you should always ask yourself when you hear a headline that says ABC is set to happen and this is going to crash the financial markets. Okay, what does that have to do with the credit market? Will that seize the operations of the credit markets? Will people stop trading with each other through the credit market? If you can't tie that back to the credit market, there's one problem with the thesis. And if you can't make the case that it'll seize the credit market, there's the other problem with the thesis. If there was ever an opportunity for something to seize up the credit market, that was First Republic Bank. It's, it's a big bank. The top five banks are now going to make up nearly 75% of the financial markets at some point. I mean, we're getting there pretty quick. So at some point, I think we're going to have to start talking about monopolies in the, in the banking market, maybe. I don't know. I guess we. I guess once you uh, get J.P. Morgan acquiring you know, Bank of America, that'll be kind of the end game right there. We're, we're not, I'm not saying that's going to happen. I'm just saying that's what you're starting to pay attention to. But, you know, this is the third bank collapse we've had since March. Asset prices are up 9% for the year on the markets. Now, look, as I said, there's, there's a lot of internal concerns, absolutely, about the markets. The economy is slowing down. But if you take a look at some of the economic data, it's not terrible. Sentiment is far worse than the actual data. In other words, how do I how I feel about the economy, how I feel about my business, how I what my outlook is, that's terrible, right? That's in the tank. And a lot of these indicators that we look at like the uh, services manufacturing indexes, the uh, Philly Fed, you know, those type of things, those are all sentiment indicators. Philly Fed calls, calls up their, the, the, the people in their poll and they say, Brent, how do you feel about sales? Yeah, I feel pretty good about them or I feel really bad about them. How do you feel about inventory levels? Ah, it's, it's about right. You know, I got too much inventory. I got too little. But it's all how you feel. They're not questions about how many sales did you have this month? What is your inventory level? What is your new orders? What are your backlogs? You know, those type of things. It's, it's how do you feel about these things? You have too much, too little, etc. Sentiment is far worse than actual data. In fact, actual economic data has been improving somewhat over the last month or so. It's sentiment that's been dragging down kind of the, the, like the recent GDP report. A lot of that was drugged down by sentiment indicators. So again, these are the things that we have to separate out when we're investing our money. And it's not, it's not easy, right? There's also a lot of technical indicators that suggest that markets could have some weakness here near term. And you know, we've talked about signals, you know, kind of our short-term buy and sell signals. But the breadth of the market has been extremely narrow. As I was saying earlier, that is a function of money crowding into just a few names because it's an easy place to hide. Markets are going up. So as an asset manager, right, let's say I, say I manage a, a big pension fund or a hedge fund or a mutual fund, whatever it is. 
and I've got to put that capital to work. Well, the easiest place to put it into, I, I go stick it into Microsoft, Apple, Google, Amazon, because those stocks are going up and they're big, big companies with lots of shares outstanding. So these companies are highly liquid names. I can put money into them and I can take money out of them and it doesn't move the price much. So it's an easy place to go hide capital until I can figure out what the hell's going on with the markets. So one of the things that's been driving the markets, of course, is this hiding of capital in these big mega cap names. It's also a function of, of you know, we've talked about before with passive indexing is people buy ETFs. It just funnels money into that those top 10 mega cap names, which make up about 30% of the index. So the combination of that continues to push fewer and fewer stocks up, leading to more narrow breadth. In fact, we've got some of the most narrow breadth in the market since like 1990. Now, that's concerning, right? And people, people point to that indicator and say, oh, well, you know, every time this has happened, you know, that's been kind of the peak of the market. And, and that's got, got some truth to it. But it doesn't mean, A, that the market's going to crash and you're going to have a big major decline in the markets, or B, it doesn't mean it's going to crash today, right? Markets can continue to rally on narrow breadth for quite some time. Now, something will eventually trigger that, and you're going to get some selling here. And the question is really, how much downside risk is there? And I would offer you to think about the fact that the market is dealing with the effects fairly well, which may suggest that downside is somewhat limited in the markets because investors have FOMO. And it's not the fear of missing out of the market going up. It's the fear of missing the bottom. It's FOMOB. <laughs> and they're so worried that the correction is now over that they want to get in to try to buy the bottom in stocks and the question is whether we're there or not yet. All right, quick break, come back, pick up with more of the show. Don't go away. The Real Investment Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. Welcome back to the show. Mysterious cluster of brain infections strike kids in Nevada. There's a headline for you this morning on CNN. <laughs> those all those nuclear tests out in White Sands finally caught up. <laughs> no mystery there. Uh, anyway, so there's an interesting article out this morning uh, in the Wall Street Journal talking about wanting to beat the stock market, avoid the cost of being human, and it's one of these typically flawed articles about why you should just buy and hold invest over time and you know you'll you know you'll you'll do better and and for a lot of individuals uh there's certainly a case for that um you know where individuals you know they're in the market they're out of the market they're all over the place they wait too long to get in they get out too early 
they get swept up in these very negative, you know, kind of commentaries of the market. So I get all out of the market. I go buy something. And we wrote an article on Friday called Conviction, uh, kind of ta- addressing this issue. So if you, if you haven't been to the website, realinvestmentadvice.com, I wrote this article talking about this very thing about conviction and having these convicted ideas. Oh, I think that this is going to do this because of, you know, X is going to become X because of Y. And I'm certain this is going to happen. So I'm going to bet all on X and then something else happens entirely. And then you wind up, you know, maybe not losing money, but you, you lose a lot of opportunity in other asset classes. And you know, so we kind of go through this, and, and this covers everything from gold to uh, emerging markets and international stocks and, you know, uh, uh, 60-40 portfolios, diversified allocations, you know, all these type of things. Investors just make, you know, a lot of mistakes. But, you know, there's a, a new study out this morning, uh, in the, according to the Wall Street Journal, that looked at the returns of more than 7,800 U.S. stock market mutual funds from 1991 through 2020, and it measured their returns against those of the market um, overall. So, and, and this is always the way this is done, right? On average, so let me just read you the headline. On average, 46% of funds outperform the total market over monthly horizons. 39% beat the market over 12-month periods. 34% over decade-long horizons. And only 24% over their full history. And that's a true story. Right. But this is also one of the problems of mutual funds as well as other things. So, first of all, mutual funds have to be invested all the time. So, if I am invested in basically a closet benchmark fund and I have to charge a fee for my mutual fund, which I do. See, this is, this is always the bad comparison to start with. So, so, the study is flawed right out of the gate because mutual funds have a business to run. So they have to charge a fee. They also have to pay taxes. They've got to pay a whole variety of other things that impact the returns of their fund over time. And they compare that to an index that has no withdrawals, inflows or outflows, right? People not, you know, because and if people are taking money out of the fund, then they've got to sell to meet those redemptions. And an index doesn't have that. Index doesn't pay taxes. Indexes don't have fees. Indexes don't have, you know, all these other things that go on with it. It's just an index. So, you know, think about it this way. You know, we're going to do a cross-country race, right? And so I can look at my Google map, and my Google map says, well, at, you know, X rate of speed, I can cross the country in 13 hours. I'm just picking a number. I don't know what it is. Kind of like Gumball Rally with Burt Reynolds <laughs> and Dom DeLuise. <laughs> so we're going to have Gumball Rally. We're going to drive across the country. So what my index says, according to Google, is, is that if I drive from point A to point Z at 75 miles an hour, I can be there in 13 hours. And so technically, if I want to, you know, that's my index, right? I, I should be able to do that in 13 hours. But I can't do that because I have to stop for gas, food, I've got to sleep, you know, whatever it is. So my trip, my real trip, even though I'm driving 75 miles an hour, is going to take me less time. It'll take me more time to get there. It's the same thing when you're comparing index performance relative of mutual funds versus the market. You've got to make all these adjustments 
to get equal, to have an equal equivalence. Also, they, they use these analysis like, well, over one, three, five, or 10-year periods, this fund underperformed the index. Well, depends on when you started. This is also one of the big fallacies that in, in individuals make is they go, well, you know, they look at a mutual fund, they go, well, over one, three, five, and 10-year periods, this fund's done great. Well, it depends on when you start. Because that mutual fund had a great track record on one years and three years. In year four, it was 2020, and it lost 35%. Year five, you know, four and five did great because of 2021, 2022. So it depends on when you started. You started, you know, late in year three. Year four really sucked. You lost a lot of money. So it's important to look at not just year-over-year -year performance, but performance over time, but you have to make these other adjustments as well. So all these flaw, the, these studies are flawed for a whole variety of reasons, and they sound great on the surface. And they're promoting buy and hold investing, which is fine. Nothing wrong with it. And for a lot of people, it's probably a good deal. If you can't manage your money and you don't want to pay somebody to do it for you, just buy and hold. I mean, it's, it's not the worst outcome. You'll get average performance over time. And as long as the markets are going up and you don't run into a period of 20 years where the markets go nowhere like they did in you know, 2000 to 2017, you know, you'll probably be okay for retirement. Question is, is you know, what's the next 20 years going to look like? You know, where are you starting that journey? Valuations have a lot to do with the outcome of that journey. But, these are the, so, but this is the point, right? You know, there are a lot of funds out there that have absolutely crushed the markets over 20 and 30 year periods. Fidelity Magellan, Sequoia Fund, numerous, numerous ones. They're not hard to find, but you've got to have long-term holding frames. And I'm, and I'm not talking about beating the market by a little these funds have crushed the index. So if, if, if you were buying and holding the S&P 500, you did okay. But you, if you bought and held one of these other funds over a 20 or 30 year period, you absolutely crucified the markets. So that's part of the job as an investor. You've got to find these things. You don't have the same constraints that... A portfolio manager does, etc. You can do whatever you want to do. You can invest in any market, any stock, any equity. You know, a mutual fund can only do certain things. And most importantly, most mutual funds have bylaws where they have to have all their capital invested all the time. They can't hold more than, say, 5% cash at any one time. So this is the, you know, the things you need to understand if you're buying mutual funds. It's what you need to know. If you're buying an ETF, you're tracking an index, you're still going to underperform because of the fees. There's still an expense ratio in an ETF. There's something else they don't tell you, right? You should just buy and hold an index. That's fine. You're still going to underperform the actual index because even the index of the index has a fee. Now, it's fairly low fee, but you're still going to underperform. So if the whole goal is to beat an index, you're not going to do it buying an index, right? You're going to get the index less the fee. So this is, you know, and this is why we go back to talking about psychology. What's the thing that separates out 
most investors from the markets. It's psychology, right? We, we, we get wrapped up in all of these very negative headlines, negative outlooks, negative data, so we don't invest. Or we get super bullish and everything is great and I take a whole bunch of risks that works out terribly wrong. Meme stocks, IPOs, SPACs, chasing bankrupt companies, etc. Both of those things are driven by psychology and ultimately it's psychology and behavior that winds up devastating our portfolios over time. And those are the mistakes that we make, right? And we're supposed to learn from those mistakes, but unfortunately we never do. And this is why it's critically important that you have an investment discipline. Here's the other thing about mutual funds versus, you know, good quality mutual funds, right? So I was talking about these funds that have absolutely crushed the index over time. And there's numerous ones, numerous. They didn't outperform the market every year. No fund will. It's impossible. It is impossible for any manager to consistently beat the index year after year after year after year without a year going against them. And the reason is simply is that markets change. One year, so if I'm a large cap fund manager, there's going to be a year where my fund underperforms the index because small cap, mid cap are running, running the show or emerging markets or international or some other thing, right? And so there's going to be a year where my fund underperforms the index. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. As long as I don't underperform it by a lot, right? And so some of these funds, the ones that have absolutely crushed the markets over the years, yes, they, they, they slightly beat the index when the index is going up, or they may even slightly lag it. But where they really shine is when they don't lose a lot of the money in a down market. It's the capital preservation side of their management that leads to these longer-term crushing performances over the index. That's also something else they don't tell you about buy and hold investing. We'll be right back after the break. daily investment news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com so back in uh 1999 Yeah, that's a long time ago. Back in the last century. Back in the last century. Um, stocks were running up, and the way that companies were getting some additional juice to their share prices were by changing their name or adopting a dot-com strategy, right? So we had pets.com and a variety of bluemonkey.com. And it didn't matter what the company was, if they just stuck a .com at the end of their name or they made this you know, comment that they were going to get into the internet, you know, start participating in that whole interweb thing, um, that it was going to be this massive boom to earnings, right? We saw that. And then you'll remember in 
just 2020, it wasn't that long ago that everybody was talking about getting into cryptocurrency or NFTs or the metaverse. Even Facebook went so far as to change their whole company name to Meta because that was going to be the new, new, new thing. And so everybody was talking about that. Stocks were running up on, on that news. Well, that didn't last long. Of course, that all blew up. So did, by the way, so did changing your name to .com. That didn't last very long either because we had the .com crash in 2001 and two. So now it's AI and large language models. And we talked about, about this a little bit more. Um, but this, this is what this bull market is, right? This is the great AI bull market. Meta is dead. So now it's going to be who, who can win the large language artificial intelligence game going forward. And everybody's trying to get into it. Mark Zuckerberg, of course, with Meta and, and of course, Google and uh, Microsoft, those companies have mentioned AI 168 times in their combined recent earnings calls. And, of course, those stocks have had big runs here as of late. And those stocks, that handful of stocks, uh, how few of those are we talking about? Seven. Seven stocks have accounted for 53% of the performance in the S&P 500 year to date. And I was talking about narrow breadth earlier in the show. Seven. And this is the important thing. In fact, those seven stocks, and I, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I, miss, I misspoke, right? 53% of the performance has been driven by these companies talking about AI. 90% of the performance is driven by just those seven stocks. There's more than just seven uh, talking about AI. But those seven large cap stocks, Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, NVIDIA, those are the ones driving the market. And so the problem becomes, again, as I was talking about earlier, this very narrow breadth in the markets, but it's also a time that we have to start thinking about sustainability and, you know, kind of what comes next, right? AI is a cool thing, and I'm, I'm, you, don't, you don't have to go far. Pull up TikTok, pull up Twitter, pull up a Google page, and it's just... You know, here's 10 ways to use chat GPT to make your life easier. Or here's how AI is going to do this or that or the other thing. Or we've developed an AI model that does X, Y, and Z. Everybody's doing this, right? Everybody's into it. And the question becomes, of course, as always, is profitability, right? Now, for companies, AI proposes a lot in terms of profit margins, right? With AI, I can certainly reduce my cost of labor. If I can get AI to, you know, write articles, I don't need to hire journalists, right? I can get one guy to just feed in headlines and then have artificial intelligence write the, write the articles. That's already happening, by the way. We've already got... Uh, artificial intelligence writing research reports and earnings reports and journal, uh, you know, earn, uh, you know, kind of quick articles for websites, you know, reporting, you know, the latest on earnings data, et cetera. 
So that's already happening, right? That's already kind of part of real time. And, and, and actually, one of the, the artificial intelligences that they're trying to now create is an artificial intelligence to detect if artificial intelligence has been used to write something for, you know, your college thesis, right? And so there's going to be this big loop. Of course, again, at the end of the day, it comes down to profitability. What can I charge for this to use it? And then again, and then again, we have to go back to what does this mean for economic growth, right? Is this going to promote higher wages and more consumption, or is this going to push wages lower as companies try to continue to support higher margins and those type of things? And then, of course, what is the potential outcome of a world that moves heavily into artificial intelligence. And again, it's coming, right? This is the industrial revolution. This is coming. Can't fight it. This is like the internet back in 1990s. Everybody was like, ah, that interweb thing. It's not going to last. Nobody's going to use that. Stupid, right? <laughs> 25 years later, still here, right? Artificial intelligence is going to be here question is is what does that mean and and importantly how do we invest for that and this is going to be one of the the big things we've got to figure out and I, don't, I wish i had the answer for you but you know productivity growth is going to be the big question and you can make more with artificial intelligence of the same amount of inputs which is increases profitability like i said but it lowers potential employment, wages, those type of things, which is what drives economic growth. I mean, it's great that you got an AI, but AI doesn't produce consumption. At the end of the day, the economy is what we're spending and what we're doing. And what made the U.S. head and shoulders above every other country of the world is that we were a big consumer base, we had growing wages and strong employment and strong economic growth. We didn't have a lot of debt back in the 60s and 70s, and so we spent 25 years ramping up credit card debt. Now we're on the other end of that spectrum where growth is becoming much more challenging. In fact, the Fed predicts right now that economic growth long-term is going to be around 1.7%. That is lower than what we call escape velocity, which is economic growth that supports the increase of the population. Since 2000, I'm going to uh, read to you a quote here. Since 2005, the quarterly labor productivity growth rate has been 0.3%, half the average of 0.6% over the period from 1947 to 2004. However, data shows that productivity is cyclical and research ties into economic conditions. Historical evidence shows that tight labor markets and technology adoption are closely linked. Not surprising. Analysts see tight U.S. labor markets continuing for years and is courage to be resilient because of increases in productivity. The diffusion of new technologies, AI in particular, can fuel productivity growth. Strong evidence suggests that 
the data era thesis remains intact and believes that techs and 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 analysts believe that tech infusion can contribute to productivity gains over the next five to ten years. But that but the problem with that is is that more productivity driven by technology leads to lower wages, which is why we've had very low wage growth and wage growth that has not kept up with inflation for the last 25, 30 years. And so this is going to be, you know, one of the very interesting parts. And we talk about how are companies going to maintain profit margins? Well, I maintain a profit margin by getting rid of my biggest cost, which is labor. And I can do that through technology. We were talking about this last week. You know, I was saying that Brent and I have been in radio for a long time. And, and back in the day, it took a lot of people to run a radio show. Today, Brent and I are not only doing a radio show, but we're also doing a radio show plus video with two people because of technology. Brent's over here like six arms going on, pushing buttons, switching levers, doing all this type of stuff. And that's not surprising because that's what technology allows us to do. Question is, is how do we adopt for this, right? And yes, there's going to be, look, people are going to create jobs out of this. And absolutely, you know, new technology creates new opportunities. There's going to be people that come up with fantastic ideas for businesses that we don't even, haven't even thought about yet that AI is going to do. And somebody's going to create some fantastic products driven by AI that are going to make our life better. Think about it. I mean, AI and, and medical and health and all the different things that go on. What can AI do better than a human? Because it can think faster. But also, how many jobs will that AI displace at the same time? It's, it's going to be a fascinating world that we move into. And the investing challenge is going to be finding the right companies to benefit from that. That's our, that's our that's our homework. All right, that wraps up the show for the day. Get by the website. My latest article is out. I encourage you to read it. It's, ta- it's called Conviction. It's on the website now. Um, go to realinvestmentadvice.com. Read that article. It is it got some investing tips for you in there as well to battle, you know, the flaws of conviction and to help you manage your money better. It's on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com, along with our latest newsletter, our daily market commentary, so much more. It's all there to help you make more money in the markets, realinvestmentadvice.com. See you back here tomorrow.